0: So I was thinking to myself, what's the nearest situation I can think of that would give us a good roadmap to accept and cope and recover from what we're going through right now? And the first thing that came to my mind was actually Viktor Frankl. And now for something completely different. Welcome to Surrounded by idiots Radio Podcast. From the beautiful deserts of southwestern United States of America, Scottsdale, Arizona, to wherever you happen to be, welcome back to the Surrounded by Idiots Radio podcast. This is Tony Dufresne, Ph.D., your host, and I genuinely would like to know how you are doing. I came across an article in both the Washington Post and the U.S. News and World Report, and it was based on a survey by the U.S. Census, a very recent survey, actually mid-May, May 7th to May the 12th. And what it indicated was more than a third Of US adults have signs of clinical anxiety or depression. A third. Those answers provide a real time window into the country's collective mental health. After three months of fear and isolation and soaring employment and continuing uncertainty about the future. And it's not just this country. I think this is indicative of the world in total. And included with this study was a breakdown of how it's impacted people based upon their income levels. And not surprisingly, the lower income level people were way more impacted, whereas the people making over 150 grand a year, 60% of them actually said they're fine, which of course makes perfect sense. There's more level of stability and a greater potential to ride something out long term. Now with that, I did read something from the Bureau of Economic Research that indicated that they anticipate 42% of the people that have been laid off or unemployed will not be reemployed which is frightening, and I don't think that that is particularly the case, but it does represent the stark realities of the unknown that all of us have. So with all of these feelings of depression and anxiety, researchers have projected that without intervention, the country's poised to experience a rise in suicides, substance abuse, and overall deaths. And the most difficult part about this situation— is it's totally different from something like a nodal event that we usually experience like nine 11 or a tornado or a tsunami, because those situations happened and then they ended and then there was an aftermath and we could deal with it at that time. Whereas this current situation, we still don't really understand it to the point where we can control it and to pile on that. There are so many different ways that people are thinking about this and so many different priorities that are going on at the same time. It's not helping us come together to unify as a team to work towards a common goal. Now, not surprisingly, the government doesn't recognize the importance of funding the mental health services. Congress appropriated trillions of dollars in those emergency funds, but almost none of it has gone towards mental health programs and clinics. And again, like I had indicated, it's not just the United States, and I'm sure where you're at, you have seen some level of this. I found a recent article in the UK version of HuffPost, and it was called, Where Has My Motivation Gone, and How on Earth Do I Get It Back? So I thought, I have to read that one, right? And there was a psychotherapist quoted in the story, and her name was Lucy Beretsford. And she said that there was, in the UK, there was a definite shift two weeks ago among her clients. And the collective dip in motivation became way more apparent after Boris Johnson's announcement of the gradual easing of lockdown restrictions. Because, again, it's not like something happens and then it's over and then you just, like, start cleaning up and start dealing with the aftermath the British public suddenly realized that this lockdown wasn't going to just automatically disappear and everybody was going to just start up again where they were. And that just took the wind out of the sails. Because with this particular situation, the days just slide into the next. The typical markers that we use every single day are gone. And there's an inability to plan anything because of the unknown. So that leads to a loss of motivation. So the question is, you know, what do we do? Well, I thought that maybe going back and researching and seeing what they did after the Spanish flu might give us some roadmap to recovery in this from a mental health standpoint. So I took a look back, and there was a psychiatrist called sven Eric Mameland and he was directly involved in the mental health efforts during that time. And what he found was that the number of first-time hospitalized patients with mental disorders attributed to that flu – increased by an average annual factor of seven times in the six years following the pandemic, which means every single year there were seven times more people impacted on a mental health standpoint than were the year before, for six years after the pandemic. And in addition, he pointed out that the Spanish flu survivors reported sleep disturbances, depression, dizziness, and difficulties coping at work, and that the flu death rates in the United States during 1918 to 1920 significantly and positively related to suicide. Unfortunately, at that time, they didn't have the tools in place in order to provide the proper help to get people through from a mental health standpoint. So then I thought, okay, well, that's not going to help. So I was thinking to myself, what's the nearest situation I can think of that would give us a good roadmap to accept and cope and recover from what we're going through right now? And the first thing that came to my mind was actually Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist that created logotherapy, the psychiatrist that was actually in a Nazi concentration camp. He developed logotherapy from that experience. And I am not, for the record, comparing being in a Nazi concentration camp to what we're going through now. So let's just put that out there. But because of the devastation, because of the tragedy, because of the absolute upside down world that these poor people were dealing with as concentration camp prisoners, I think it can give us a real good idea in terms of how to cope with something that is so far off of our radar. Now, logotherapy is a branch of psychology, and it's built on the belief that humans are driven by meaning. Logo meaning meaning. The driving force in Frankel, both his survival and the theory itself, is everything can be taken from a man but one thing. It's the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, and to choose one's own way. And I think that part is the part that we can... Attached to and we can work with given our current circumstance it's the to choose our attitude in any given set of circumstances and to choose our own way because as Frankel indicated between the stimulus and the response there's this space and that's the space where you decide how to respond you have the power to choose your response. And in that response lies growth and freedom. And even though it feels as though you can't do anything, and even though it feels as though there's no way you could make any plans or grow in any particular direction, Or grow in the direction that you already had planned prior to all of this stuff stopping you in your tracks. There is the possibility of doing that, and it comes down to reframing and looking things a little bit different. And you're probably getting sick of me saying reframing, but I'm going to pound that into your head until it's subconscious. Now, Frankl's coping mechanisms, there were three main ones that I think we can use in this particular situation. The first one is called rich inner lives. And what he indicates is no matter how unbearable our external circumstances Humans have the ability to retreat into an inner psychological space of peace and safety. Now, in his situation, the prisoners in the camps who had rich inner lives, they coped way better day to day in the concentration camps than the prisoners who didn't have that. And what this includes, it includes humor and appreciation for art and for beauty and for religious or spiritual beliefs and imagination and, of course, love. Those were the things that people fell back on. They didn't define their reality by just the external circumstances of these terrible people holding them in these camps and the death and destruction that was all around them. The second coping mechanism he talks about is is goals. And as the prisoner in the concentration camp at the time, they had no identity at all. They were stripped of their identity and, of course, their possessions. And they had no idea if they would be free, if ever. Now, in terms of the current situation, it's like being stuck indefinitely in this provisional existence. We have no idea when things are going to open up, when things are going to get back to semi-normal, if ever. It's a provisional existence. We're sort of treading water. Yet with that existence in the darkest hours of being in a concentration camp, those with this coping mechanism found a way to persist. They found a way to hold on to those goals. They found a way to plan. They found a way to make them real in their own mind. Because once you know your why on things, you will find the how. And in that circumstance, the how sometimes could not be met because they were incarcerated in the camp. But they knew the why, and that's the important thing. And it's the important thing for us, too, because that provides the inner motivation to understand that the how will come. The third coping mechanism that he used during the time in the camp was it's called the perception of choice. Because despite the suffering in the camp— Prisoners still had choices. Not many, but they did. They constantly decided if they'd push to survive another day or simply give up. They chose whether to let the camp degrade them to an animal or stay true to their human values and their sense of self. That's the choice that you have and I have Outside of the terrible concentration camp, you and I have the the power of choice to refocus and to not let this particular abnormal situation define us and where we're going on our next step. Because their daily choices, including how they chose to interpret their situation and respond to them, defined who they were as a person. And that we can use. Again, you may feel beaten down a little bit. This 34% of people do. But it's not about the beat down. It's about the understanding that that's the case, the understanding that you don't feel great and at, and reaching out or working on yourself to the point where you understand it's a temporary situation and you can move on from there. You know, we all trip and fall, but you bet it's a matter of getting up. So my call to action is, again, based on reframing with the first step being a morning reset because we don't know what's going to happen in the next week or two or three or five or Let's say they do open stuff up and everything goes okay, and then two, three weeks later, things go completely to hell because it's going to spike again. Which historically it's going to. There were four spikes in the Spanish flu. The second spike was in August, and that was the worst one. And it's because everybody got lackadaisical. Everybody got frustrated and impatient, and they and they opened up too soon. And that's exactly what's happening right now. So expect some level of that to happen. Now with that. Every morning, getting up, understanding you've got a morning reset, what is in front of you that day, and what's the step that can build you towards where you're going in the context of where you're at now? You can't go into work, or you don't have a job, or you're not going to school, or you've got two kids you have to take care of. What is it that you can do to modify and continue to make your life easier? Because everything is about adaptation. And it's just, a, it's a new gig. You know, when you're dropped into a new job, do you expect just to know everything and to be fluent within that system and to be super efficient? Of course not. So this is the same thing. You get dropped into this situation where you had no idea you would ever be dropped in and it's a matter of adaptation. It's- so remember, first step is the morning reset, and it's based on what you know right then and there. It's not based on speculation. It's not based on your anxiety in terms of things will never happen. It's not based on forecasts that things will open up or they won't open up. It's based on what you know, what's in front of you that day. The second step is to develop an action plan based on that knowledge. The third and the last call to action on this is called a tribe touch. I mean, we can do this alone, but it's a lot more difficult. We're all in this together and make sure you do at least one tribe touch. And I talked about this, I think uh, last week or the week before in regards to taking that 20 minutes and uh, just calling somebody that you were emailing somebody that you haven't emailed in a while. It makes a huge difference. And it's important for people to know that we're all in this together. Number one, morning reset based upon what you know. Second step is developing an action plan based on that information. And the third thing is to reach out. And Touch your tribe. Hope things are great. I hope that helped. Uh, If there's any questions or concerns, if you have anything having to do with this or anxiety or depression, send me an email. We can chat back and forth. It's Tony at javabud.com. You can go to the website javabud.com. I also have the YouTube channel up if you guys are watching. Thank you. And Alexa, Flash Briefings. If you want to copy the book, shoot me an email. Tony at javabud.com. I hope things are great. Take care of yourself. And... Take care of your people. I'm too tired we'll talk to soon. pretend I don't want to be alone. I'm calling off. All-